Welcome to TD Cowan Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors. Comfort and purpose for everyone. Welcome to the Retail Visionary podcast series, a podcast about visionary ideas and people. My name is Oliver Chen. I'm TD Cowan's New Platforms Retail and Luxury Analyst. In this episode, we will explore retail strategies for innovation and growth through the unique lens of Bombas, a premium comfort-focused sock and apparel brand on a mission to help those in need. Today, we're thrilled to feature Bombas's Chief Executive Officer and Co-Founder, Dave Heath. Prior to Bombas's 2013 launch, Dave led business development as one of the founding employees at Urban Daddy and later joined the new media acquisitions and strategy team at Ukaipa Companies. Additionally, Dave was featured on ABC's Shark Tank and was named EY Entrepreneur of the Year. Dave, it's great to be here with you. You too, Oliver. Thanks for having me. I personally wear Bombas every day, as you know, and I've done so Thank for you. over five years. Can you tell us what makes Bombas different and so successful? You know, when we first started the company, as as many people might know, our whole story founded around our mission. I was working at this media company and I came across a quote that said socks are the number one most requested clothing items at homeless shelters. And being kind of entrepreneurial minded, I went to school for entrepreneurship. My dad was an entrepreneur. I looked at that problem and I was like, you know, wow, I, I want to find a way to help solve that problem. Uh, not really having any interest or experience in building an apparel company, I kind of went out and learned everything that I needed to learn about, you know, socks, because I had this idea around buy one, give one based on the popularity uh, that Tom Shoes and then Warby Parker uh, had made around that business model. And I thought maybe this is a way to kind of, you know, help this community while also, you know, leaning on my entrepreneurial skills. And so I went out and I learned everything there was to learn about um, the sock industry. And what I learned was that there was a massive bifurcation between low cost, low quality commodity type products, stuff that, you know, for the most part I was wearing. And I think a large part of the population wears, um, you know, bag, you know, socks that you'll buy 12 of in a plastic bag from Costco or Walmart. And then I went into specialty stores, especially athletic stores specifically, and saw that there were running socks and hiking and basketball and all these specialty athletic products that were, you know, retailing for anywhere from 15 to $35 for a single pair. And I sat there and I asked myself, how could one product kind of cost less than 50 cents a pair and then another product cost, you know, $40? And as I started to look at kind of the athletic market, I realized there was a tremendous amount of innovation, obviously, that was put into these products to help athletes perform at their highest levels. So things like seamless toe, arch support, uh, comfort footbeds, um, you know, articulation in the heel, the fabrics that the products were using that, you know, blends of you know, natural fibers like merino wool and cotton and, you know, synthetic fibers that would help with moisture and temperature regulation. And, you know, I kind of came to this thesis around, well, why should athletes be the only ones that should be feel supported and 
have all of these, you know, amazing technology innovations around foot comfort when, you know, everybody is really on their feet all day long, you know, whether you're, you know, uh, a grandma chasing their grandkids around, a nurse who's on their feet all day, a firefighter, a doctor, you know, a real estate broker who's running from house to house. I just thought of, you know, everybody deserves the level of comfort that athletes deserve. So I took all of that innovation and I, you know, worked with, you know, a number of factories to kind of figure out how I could take that innovation and put it into a product that, you know, you and I could wear to the office every day. Um, and that was kind of the the general thesis around how we built Bombas and this idea around if we could make a better sock that more people would buy, then we could ultimately then donate more product to those in need. David, your brand and the lifestyle brand, as well as your customer base is very loyal and you focused on customer lifetime value as well. What really drives uh, this this loyalty from your community, you know, I think a large part we get a we get a lot of credit for our mission, and I think our our commitment and transparency around our mission. You know, we're in our tenth year of business. We just donated our hundred millionth item uh, of clothing to the homeless community, and we're regularly updating our community. Uh, around the progress and you know the things that we're fighting for using our platform, whether it's email or social, uh, as ways to kind of bring uh, awareness to that community um, around kind of the you know different struggles or opportunities that you know we're seeing on the front lines uh, when dealing with our 3,500 giving partners. Then you know on top of that we deliver and then stand by our incredible product. So we are certainly a product innovation and high quality product focused organization. Um, We don't let anything go out the door that has not been rigorously tested on our end or developed from our uh, point of view as, you know, looking about thinking about the end customer and how they would use our products. Something as small as, you know, even the high end products that you would buy would in the stores would be held together with what's called a swift tack. And so it's this plastic, you know, tack that they stick between two socks. And I'm sure if, you know, like you or like most people, I would get home and I'd rip that thing apart. And sometimes it would pull the thread through and and create a hole in the sock. So I was like, let's develop packaging that doesn't force the customer, you know, because not everybody's going to take out a pair of scissors and neatly cut it. You know, they're like in a rush. They want to grab their product. They want to open it. So it's just being incredibly thoughtful about that. And then if you do have a problem with our product, we have this thing, what we call the 100, 100%, 100% happiness guarantee, which we will stand by all of our products um, You know, for the lifetime of the product. Um, if you get a hole in your product after you know certain number of wears, you can reach out to our customer happiness team and they will replace that product for you. Um, you know, we always joke that if your dog eats one of your socks, like reach out to us, we'll like, we know that life happens. And so, um, we stand behind everything that we do, um, you know, a hundred percent. So I think it's the culmination of a brand that feels incredibly authentic and transparent around their mission, a brand that is committed and regularly delivers on an incredibly high quality product and then standing behind, that incredible product, um, you know, from the lifetime or use of, of the product through the, how the customer uses that, you know, um, 
So those are the three ways I think really culminate brand loyalty from our side. David, you've also had this decade of innovation and a lot uh, coming as well. What about milestones? Which milestones most recently are you most excited about and which milestones going forward are you really looking forward to? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I kind of mentioned it already, you know, when we started this business, you know, not having sold a single pair of socks, we originally had this milestone of of donating a million pairs of socks, so much so to the point where I I kind of promised and half jokingly bet one of my co-founders, I was like, if we ever get to a million pairs donated, I'll tattoo the Bombas logo uh, on my body. Uh, I had no tattoos at the time. Um, we thought it would take 10 years and it only took two. Um, and then the following year, we donated 5 million. And the following year after that, 10 million. And here we are, 10 years later, we've donated 100 million items of clothing to those in need uh, across 3,500 giving partners represented in all 50 states. Um, you know, from giving partners that are small as some that can only take 250 pairs a year uh, to giving partners that can take upwards of 10 million a year. And I'm incredibly proud of not only the milestone, but the way in which we achieve that milestone by ensuring that we have full coverage. We're not just dealing with one large giving partner where we say, okay, we're farming that the giving side of our business out to you know a nonprofit. We have 3,500 direct relationships with partners all across the country that allows us to keep our finger on the pulse as to what's going on in the homeless community so that we can then relay that information back to our customer base and continue the flywheel of you know, building awareness and, and hopefully compassion and dignity around this. So obviously that that milestone represents probably the biggest uh, you know in in our most recent history. A couple of years ago, we launched underwear and uh, we're starting to see great traction in that. So much so to the point where uh, in our women's underwear business, uh, we had a lot of women asking if we were ever going to make bras or bralettes. And so uh, just last year, we released uh, the bralette uh, for our women's business. It ended up selling 10 times faster than we had originally thought and made the compounding silhouette uh, that you know it matches for the bottoms in women's underwear. Uh, now our number one selling into uh, women's underwear product in that category. So being able to continue to see the consumer evolve with us in our journey and moving from a socks only business for eight years to now being in underwear to being in t-shirts to being in slippers and soft you know comfortable footwear um it's exciting to watch the brand evolve in that way and so while maybe not as distinct as saying hitting 100 million items donated you know we're uh you know it's it's also fun to see that and maybe on the on the side um you know shark tank is in their 15th season and they just recapped uh the top 15 shark tank uh companies by revenue and we're number one so it was also also a fun little competition to see there as well yeah that's amazing it all comes back also these are very competitive markets you've been entering especially bralettes so congrats on that topic david uh product mix it's an interesting question it's not easy to innovate into new categories uh, what do you see happening with the mix over time? How do you approach innovation to really fuel this development? Yeah, you know, it. we think about innovation not as 
you know, stuff that's developed necessarily like in a lab, you know, with, you know, under microscopes and crazy, you know, uh, pieces of equipment. Innovation for us is really connecting with our customer and understanding our customer and how they use our products or will use our future products and try to understand what are the biggest pain points from, you know, wearability, comfort, uh, durability, um, you know, the fit, you know, and, and this was really, I think all kind of, when we go back to the beginning where we had some of our biggest competitive advantage was the fact that myself and my co-founder didn't come out of the apparel industry. You know, we never spent a day in manufacturing. So we didn't come at this from thinking about, okay, what product can we make for what price point? And, you know, we, we kind of, we did it the other way around. We just said like, let's create the absolute best product possible. And as customers ourselves, what are the things that we are constantly, you know, plagued with as a, you know, regular sock consumer? You know, I was always frustrated that after a few washes, my calf socks would stretch out and fall down. I was always annoyed with that annoying toe seam that would feel like, you know, really ridgy, if, especially if you're wearing a tighter pair of shoes. Um, you know, I was, I was annoyed with the fact that after a while, this, the, the fabric would start to feel like cardboard and get really scratchy and stiff. The same kind of design philosophy that helped us build our sock business, uh, we just lent that same, you know, idea to how we're building our underwear and t-shirt business was, you know, think about the way the customers live and, and, you know, operate in our, in our products. And the interesting thing about socks, underwear, and t-shirts is they're typically the three items that you put on first thing in the morning and take off last thing at night. And they're the three items that we all wear that are closest to our bodies. So comfort and movement uh, in these items and the way that they kind of perform throughout the day as that kind of base layer almost is incredibly important. So that's the way that we think about technology and innovation rather than coming out and saying, oh, we've got this crazy new fabric. We're not really interested in telling the customer about the innovation, more so about what how the product will perform in different you know types of environments that we'll see our customers in, whether it's our performance product like running and hiking and skiing or more of our everyday product um, you know, that we kind of call casual. David, another theme that we have here is what I call digital and the importance of digital meets physical as well. On that topic, um, what about your strategy in terms of channels? You've been a pioneer of direct to consumer for sure. Yeah, you know, we're we're still about 93% direct to consumer through our own website. I think we've been both lucky uh, as well as focused um, over the years as to making sure that digital is our first and foremost competency. You know, also, I think part of the period in which we grew up, you know, starting in 2013, we were kind of really right at the precipice of, you know, Facebook and digital marketing starting to come online. And knowing that that was going to kind of be our focus, we overinvested in that area early on. And I don't mean just in terms of dollars, I mean more so in terms of technology and the thought processes around how we were going to acquire customers and then keep customers in our customer journey. But we certainly had the benefit, you know, 10 years ago, uh, you know, Facebook CPAs were like $3 when we started. So like, you know, they were, they were much cheaper than they are today. And by the time, you know, I hear everybody, right. They're all talking about, Oh, 
digital marketing is so expensive and all this thing. And, and I don't disagree with that. It is. I, and I think it's incredibly hard for direct-to-consumer brands starting today to achieve what we achieved in the amount of time that we achieved it because the landscape was just so different. I mean, we had a really long period of time where CPAs were slowly building and rising that we were building our business at that time. And there is this concept of escape velocity where we got to such a size and scale in terms of our marketing organization, our marketing budget, our sophistication around technology and tools that we use, um, that when things like iOS 14 and you know some of the you know IDFA regulations around data um, started to come in, we were so large and had such a large data set of our own, given our customer base was so large. I mean, millions and millions and millions of people that we were then less reliant on the data that Facebook was providing. And we could kind of use our own data pool to then figure out, oh, is this customer who's coming in like the other customers that are in this data pool? And can we cross-reference and you know use data lookbacks and uh, multi-touch you know, attribution modeling and you know all of this kind of much more complex stuff, which frankly, startups, you can't do it because you just don't have the size and scale and you don't really have the budget to do it um, at that point, that that has become a real differentiator for us, which is why we continue to find success in growing our business digitally. Now, I do agree with you in the uh, you know side of of, of uh, digital. Um, so we are seven percent of our business is represented in wholesale, and if you think about you know seven percent of you know our revenue, if you doubled that right because of the wholesale margin. Um, you know, it would be closer to kind of 14% at retail. And we still see that as being a, a, an important channel for us to be at because we realize that not all of our customers uh, necessarily want to purchase our products, you know, digitally. Some people want to still touch and feel a product. And then there's also the impulsivity, right? Or or being in the right place as the shopper is thinking about it. So when, you know, a customer is going and thinking about buying shoes for themselves or, you know, maybe perhaps for their kids or their family, they might also then see our sock wall at Dick's Sporting Goods or Nordstrom's and say, oh, right, I should get my, you know, I should get my myself or, you know, my family some socks to go along with these shoes. We see incredible sell-through rate uh, at our, our our wholesale partners. And oftentimes we are the number one uh, in, in most of the doors that we're in, we're the number one selling sock category. And I think a large part of that is because of the digital marketing efforts that we do uh, to promote our digital business. We're obviously getting some of that benefit. You know, we're on Sirius Satellite Radio. We spend money in TV advertisements. So if you're in the car and you hear our Sirius Satellite Radio ad, maybe you're on the way to a Nordstrom's or you're going shopping at you know one of our other partner stores, maybe that helps them be top of mind and then help with that purchase. Uh, so we we like this idea. Um, I don't know if, you know, we, we don't really have any plans to do our own brick and mortar. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that our category being basics, you know, socks, tees, and underwear uh, necessarily justifies a destination type purchase for a consumer. Um, so we want to be more so uh, where the consumer is already shopping, um, you know, for like-minded, you know, products, and and make sure that we're represented there uh, when you know when they're ready to make a purchase. Yeah, you really um, speak to the importance of first-party data and and zero-party data, and how that's just 
become so much more important over time. A class I teach at Columbia is called uh, New Retail Magic and Logic. So on the logic side, supply chain is so important, as well as inventory management. Could you speak to uh, your thoughts on on your supply chain and also um, how how do you manage pricing trends relative to the volatility that we see and cost of goods sold? Yeah. So from a supply chain perspective, as we're getting larger, you know, diversification for us, um, you know, becomes incredibly important. Uh, just especially, you know, you're looking at the geopolitical landscape. It feels like at any moment, any, any region could be disrupt, disrupted um, for anything. So, you know, it's why while we're central, centrally mostly producing in Southeast Asia and China, Taiwan, um, you know, we, we also have some manufacturing partners in uh, Latin America and Mexico and Peru. Um, you know, we also have some uh, manufacturing partners in the Middle East and Turkey. So the diversification, especially as we get larger, um, is a key, key cornerstone of our forward looking strategy um, to make sure that, you know, we don't ever really have single points of failure. Um, however, you know, on the flip side of that, we, you know, as, I, as we were talking about before, quality still remains our number one focus with our product. So we are not determining factory partners based on cost. We are determining factory partners based on expertise and specialty. So, you know, typically, um, you know, like South America is where we make a lot of our t-shirt product. You know, um, they they make beautiful t-shirts out of Peru. Um, Whereas, you know, our performance sock products are, you know, made out of, you know, factories in Taiwan, closer to some of the performance you know, factory brands like, you know, Nike and Lululemon, whereas, you know, a lot of the core kind of product is coming centrally out of China as one of the largest sock manufacturers in the world. So we focus on where the specialty is, but then again, balance that with diversification so that uh, we don't really get caught. As it as it relates to the costing side of things, um, you know, I think our business is somewhat unique in that, you know, we're we're not dealing in, you know, highly, highly specialized products that require multiple inputs. You know, there's no zippers or buttons or, you know, uh, you know, in a lot of inputs on our individual products. So the, you know, we can, we're less affected by a lot of that volatility, obviously as cotton and oil and some of those things, you know, we're, we're thinking about, you know, buying futures and, and, you know, buying into certain, um, you know, uh, yarns and stuff ahead of time if we feel like the the prices of that specific commodity might be going up. Um, but generally speaking, uh, you know, the volatility there has, has not has it had as big of an impact on us um, as it has with other brands. You know, obviously the, the the biggest impact was was the supply chain logistics side of the business, the shipping during during COVID and kind of coming out of that. Uh, but thankfully, all of that has normalized uh, and we are back to, you know, kind of pre, uh, pre-pandemic rates on, on all of our freight and shipping. So, um, yeah, and at that point, we just, we just ate the margin <laughs> for the period of time until that normalized. Thanks for that, David. Very helpful. Also, we'd love to ask you about the competitive environment. You and I have seen many, many cycles and disruption. What trends have been shaping the market competitively in the past five to 10 years and that, that are noteworthy? 
we have for the most part, I think, been pretty insulated from competition directly. You know, uh, there, there are certainly a lot of, you know, sock brands and underwear brands out there. Um, you know, I think a lot of them, everybody's kind of carved out their, you know, their specific niche. Um, you know, there, there are a lot of other stock brands that tend to be way more fashion forward and rely more on collaborations and celebrity endorsements and, and things like that. Um, most of the underwear brands, uh, if, you know, at least when they started tend to be monogendered. So, you know, I think one of the things that has been unique about Bombus is that we've, we, for the most part, been an equally distributed gender brand from day one, um, which I think as we started to get into underwear and started to get into t-shirts has given us a lot of, um, you know, not credibility, but I think leeway to be able to speak to both parties because both genders have understood, you know, our product as a core comfort product. And then, you know, we, they've kind of given us the permission to kind of go into those other brands. Um, I certainly think from a competitive landscape, you know, one of the, you know, it's not the industry that we play in, but, you know, you can obviously think about, you know, the success of a brand like Skims, um, you know, being kind of in the undergarments world, um, you know, the, you know, the, the Kardashian machine is, you know, it never, never ceases to amaze me how, you know, everything that that family seems to touch turns to gold. And, you know, it's, it's hard to directly compete with that, which is why we don't, um, because they just have friends in the celebrity world. And, you know, Kim Kardashian still drives a tremendous amount of, uh, you know, awareness and, and validity with their customer base. And so, um, they're getting all that marketing for free, um, you know, which, you know, we would have to pay for if we went down kind of that celebrity route. Um, so I'm, I'm certainly impressed with what they've been able to do. Um, and then, you know, there's other brands that are, you know, more focused on kind of the fast fashion side. And, um, you know, it, it's just not been a world in which we wanted to chase. Uh, you know, we, we are not, we're not competing on price. That's not our um, you know, it's not our brand proposition. Uh, we're competing on ultimately quality, which we then ultimately think translates into value because our products last a lot longer, uh, which then in turn makes them a lot more sustainable. Um, and then obviously backing, uh, everything up with our brand promise uh, around our guarantee, um, gives hopefully our customers comfort in spending a little bit more with us, knowing that at any point in time, they have a problem with any of our products they can simply get it replaced for free. So we, I, again, I think we've been somewhat lucky um, that we, you know, have kind of carved out this nice little, you know, niche for us where I think by the time we were as big as we were, other people that tried to come in, it became really hard for them to compete with us. Um, and then kind of the, you know, big incumbents, you know, directly in our space, I think are, uh, are slower. They were slower to react. And then I think they have so much brand legacy, um, you know, with them that it's become a hard ship to turn. And then the truly, truly big companies, the Nikes and the Adis of the world, you know, our product categories represent such a small part of their business that it's not something that they're inherently focused on. So for the most part, we've been able to kind of build our brand and build our business um, without really any direct head-to-head competition. That's amazing. Um, last question, David. 
So I think you've been very on Gen Z focused in terms of mission and, and purpose. Um, how do you think Gen Z may, may or may not be different from prior generations? And related to this, congrats on your impact report. Would love uh, to hear some of those key findings and any closing remarks you may have. On the Gen Z comment, I think the the thing that separates them the most is from from what we're seeing is in how they shop. You know, they're they're much more quick to shop. They don't do a tremendous amount of research, and you know, and and the challenge with that is you know you get them to convert very quickly on things like TikTok or Instagram on a specific on a specific product or even a specific product category, but then it makes product education about your other product categories or other products very difficult because they came in to buy the red, white, and blue, you know, calf sock and, you know, they checked out on it and, you know, they leave, they're, they're not browsing, right? They're not coming in, you know, everything's done on a mobile device. Everything's done with quick pay. Um, you know, conversion rates are insane, right? Like if you can get the Gen Z, you know, if you can get their attention, um, you can easily convert them very, very quickly. Um, but, they are harder to ultimately build longer term brand value with because, you know, they're, they're easily distracted. They're kind of onto the next product. You know, they see what they like, they buy it very quickly. Um, so it's certainly be- becoming one of the interesting challenges. Uh, they don't engage with email notifications and, and marketing as much. Um, so social is the world in which they live. And so, you know, trying to figure out how to do retention-based marketing through social, uh, which historically has been very expensive um, with that specific audience, I think is going to be one of the you know more interesting challenges. But what we are seeing um, is obviously they resonate in- incredibly well with our mission. Um, you know, all of the transparency around our mission, which includes the impact report, which was um, for the first time uh, last year, we uh, surveyed all 3,500 giving partners that we had, um, and we released this very public impact report around you know the number of products we donate, where we donate them to, and what is ultimately the impact you know that we're having on a giving partner level. And things like coming back that say 61% of our giving partners say that working with Bombas has in, has been able to significantly increase their community engagement because they're able to take our products out into their communities and use it as a conversation starter. Um, and they have also said that 99% uh, of all of our giving partners has allowed them to increase their impact in the community uh, that they work with. So so it's it's validation of the work that we're doing and not just saying, yeah, we donated these products, but what does donating these products actually mean to the 3,500 giving partners that we work with on a regular basis? How is it impacting the communities and the people that they're working with? Because we're a couple of steps removed, right? We're, we're providing these products, but ultimately we know that the products are ending up on the feet and on the bodies of people who really need them um, and wanted to be able to close that loop for the customer and tell that story in a much more uh, rich and data-filled way. So um, people can Google Bombus Impact Report and kind of get the full download on, on, on all of the insights that we learned uh, from that. But yeah, I think, uh, you know, but I think as my final takeaway, what has probably surprised me the most over the last 10 years is, you know, for the, the beginning, it was, we were all focused on millennials, right? Because the millennials are the ones who care about, you know, the planet and sustainability and giving back and, you know, companies that, you know, uh, do good in the world. 
Um, and then now it's Gen Zers. And the, the truth of the matter is, you know, we survey our customer base and, you know, we've got a large customer base over 50. We've got, you know, customers in their 40s and their 30s, right? Unique uh, across the entire spectrum of age, everybody validates for us that that the reason that they chose and still choose to support Bombas um, is because we're a brand that does good. Um, so I don't think that doing good is uniquely inherent uh, to one generation. Um, it's just trying to find the people, um, you know, where doing good is important to them. And I think as we're as we continue to evolve as a society, I think more and more people, regardless of age, want to support brands that do good. Well, that's a great note to end on, David. Thanks for sharing with us uh, these ideas around mission, purpose, executing with impact, and also uh, the evolution of what we've been seeing in retail, a cost distribution, as well as marketing. Great being here with you. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of TD Cowan Insights.